This is Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Lena. I'm Matt Henry. I'm Matt Miller. And I'm Mark. All right, so we're going to start a series on the nature of the Trinity, which is a rather complex um, subject, and hopefully we won't lose you. And long. Yeah, it's going to be long. But and mysterious. Well, we're going to try to take as much of the mystery out, with, but we're going to fail. So, it, but it's really needed uh, for for a variety of reasons because today the church is just flat out forgetting its history. It's losing its core doctrines. Um, Matt and I are consistently frustrated over that as we talk to other pastors and and they place basically are just downplaying core doctrines, which is the basis of orthodoxy. It's 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 right. terrible. Yeah. So you know when you ask the average pastor today to explain to Trinity, oftentimes what you end up with is a heretical, not intentionally, but a heretical sense of what the Trinity means and what it is. So we're going to try to rectify that a little bit. Um, but in that, today what we're going to talk about is the value of contemplating God. And that's always a challenge because when you deal with the person of God, you're you're really in deep water. It's, it's not an easy subject because we're finite creatures dealing with the infinite person of God and you can get yourself into trouble you can you can actually just get lost as you are trying to describe would you agree with that yeah all right so yeah well, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 well it's true though I mean it's why so many as you just said are finding themselves in heresy again we just heard a guy who's literally preaching something very heretical but it's also a guy who dislikes theology. Yeah. But he doesn't know history. He doesn't know where the church has been. And so he can't no. benefit from that. And no. so now he's winding his way through whatever he wants. And this is where he is. And winding his way or wending his way? Have you ever heard that why word, don't you wending? Why don't you teach me? <laughs> it's wending. Really? Yeah. Not I've wind? I've never heard that before. No, wending. Like? Like bending. With a W. Yeah, but with a W. Wending. Oh, gosh. Okay. And I'm just here to serve. No, I appreciate this. I was like an idiot talking about these things like mad, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, anyhow, now that we had that little subject and watch, I'll be wrong, but uh, I believe I'm correct. Um, yeah, fact check him. <laughs> well, as, as the TV show Duck Monk says, go. he says, I could be wrong, but I'm not. But I'm not. <laughs> anyhow, so... Um, what, what we have is, what is the highest thing that any Christian can study? And it's going to be the person of God. And we like to talk about theology, but we forget that behind theology is the person of God. He is, he is the essence of what theology is. It's so, where all other theology right. comes. And so until you understand God um, as best that you can, um, your theology is at best theoretical. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it lacks... Um, I don't even know how to describe it, almost in an emotional, relational 
quality to it. It's just cold and dry and it's just theoretical. But once you start understanding how it is interacting with the person of God and the heart of God, the mind of God, then it takes on a life. So it's a, it's a worthwhile uh, task, even though it can be a little daunting at times. But we also just watched the American church dumb itself down. And the presumption is you're going to preach 30 minutes and that is a long one. And so we still get the funny looks, don't we? Because mm-hmm. we we say, well, we preach an hour, and if we could get by with it, we'd preach longer. In fact, I think you just recently did a seventy-minute sermon, but it was well worth those extra ten minutes. I, I, think. I thought we were going to forty-five minutes. <laughs> we were. You guys can't do that. <laughs> but that was a vicious lie. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> uh, actually, you know, that's because of the two campus model. But I right, mean, we're right. able to sneak by with an it hour, works. and and yeah. if we can do it with an hour, I know we're joking, but honestly, the fifteen minutes extra is worth it because yeah, yeah. it, it allows is. you to actually develop something. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've I've been I've known myself to do a 30 minute introduction. So yes. I think if we did 30 minutes at the church, people wouldn't know what to do with it. No. And and again, how do you stand firm against the onslaught of this age when you 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 literally have their hearts and minds for 30 minutes? That's it. Right. I actually wrote <laughs> so it was funny because I did go, I went I think 67 minutes and then we talked about it um just t- to give an apology for why we make no apology for how long we go. And it ended up making my second sermon because of that introduction, like 80 minutes. (laughs) So so right now on my desktop, I have a thing, why I make no apology for a long sermon and I'm waiting to stick it in at some point. Yeah, I I don't think we should ever have to apologize. And um, I think there's coming a day where there's gonna be the backlash where people are gonna yearn more and more for that as they realize that the things that are happening in our our society and our nation is is such that they don't have the answers. And it's really nice to have that relevant, so so to speak, message that makes you feel good, but it doesn't fix it when you're undergoing persecution right. or you're you're having to face some radical decisions in your life. So mm-hmm. anyhow, so uh, you've got a great quote by Spurgeon on why we should study and contemplate God. Yeah, and it's and it's a little bit long, but it's a good quote. Uh, but we don't make apologies for long. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so he, he says, now he was 20 years old hmm. when he wrote this. Okay. So just that alone, when, when they listen to what you're going to read, have got whoever's listening, keep that in your mind. You're, this is a 20 year old. I want you to ask yourself how many 20 year olds you know that would produce this. Yeah. Well, I know what I are they do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's what he writes. He says the proper study for any Christian is the Godhead. Um, essentially talking about the person of God himself, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doing, and the existence of the great God whom he calls father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can encompass and grapple with. In them, we feel a kind of self-contentment and go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away. And with no solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. 
No subject of contemplation will tend to more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. <laughs> the most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. And again, that was 20 years old. So yeah. yeah. And so when we're going to deal with the Godhead and we're going to talk about God himself, he is by his very nature infinite. And that reality tells us that as we examine him, that we will at times become very exasperated. And I think anyone studying the person of God has got to become comfortable with discomfort. Mystery. Yeah. Um, I, I in, in my classes, when I teach on the theology of God or theology proper, I tell people, you know, in one sense, the scripture is going to reveal God and you're going to clarify and understand better who he is. But there comes a point where you zero in on some aspect of God and then it just disappears mm -hmm. into the infinitude of God. And, and you're like... And I, you're in good company because that was Paul yeah, in Romans, right? Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, we have to. We just have to embrace that. We we have to become uncomfortable when we think about God, and yet that should not cause us to say, "Well, it's too hard" or "It's too awkward." Um, but rather, we just should brace ourselves and accept that it is what it is. Yeah, and so as you're studying theology, you it it, it often creates more questions than it does answer sometimes. And yeah, I remember when I was doing Ecclesiastes, it it. it was very transformative for me because essentially he's saying the mark of a wise person is someone who understands that there will always be unanswerable questions in life. Mm -hmm. So how much more so than with the person of God, who's yeah. mm -hmm. an infinite reality. And so we would say it's wise to become comfortable with questions when, when you're considering him, um, that these tight little boxes isn't the goal. Um, the goal is just to understand better what you can. <laughs> well, and, and whenever I hear a person who has too many clean answers about the person of God, I know that they haven't thought usually as deep as they ought to because, again, it gets dis it, it begins to disappear into his mysteriousness. Mm -hmm. um, usually we're talking about God rather than talking of God, yeah. if that makes and sense. And usually when they do, not usually, but sometimes when they do have those clean, tight answers, the result can be actually false doctrine. Um, from these people who think they've arrived and trying to explain the Bible and then certainly the person of God. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, over the last few years, there has uh, arisen an idea that because God is infinite, that we can't know him at all. And so we should say nothing. We should just kind of leave it alone. But the reality is uh, places like Acts 17, Paul says to the Athenian philosophers who are not believers that they should be seeking after him. And the presumption behind that is that he is knowable. And, and the reality is that we can know God and he is knowable. But the key to understanding that is that he's revealed himself in the Bible and he's revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. So mm -hmm. there are certain things that you're going to have to do. You can't just look at nature and come up with ideas of God. You're going to have to right. go to the scripture always, and consider Christ carefully. Um, yeah. At the same time, we can spend our entire life pursuing him and never exhaust ourselves. Yeah. And, and this is Ephesians 2, when he says yeah. that this is what eternity will be is you just discovering more and more and more of the infinite because by his very nature, he's not exhaustible. 
you'll never fully know God, even in eternity. You're just going to spend the rest of it hmm. coming into more and more knowledge of his grace and his mercy toward you and then of who he is as Ephesians 2 states. In fact, I said in one sermon years ago that in eternity, even though I don't know if we'll have any sense of time, um, at the end of 10 million years, if you were to come up for air, so to speak, you'll be no closer to fully understanding God than when you began. And that I, I don't even have a way to explain that. Yeah, you won't have moved the, the yardsticks at all. Yeah, you're, yeah, I mean, even though you've immeasurably expanded your knowledge of him, it never ends. Mm -hmm. And that that's mind-blowing, um, and it's very humbling. And so when people start telling you, well, God is love, and, and they just put a period on it, yeah. You know, it it just kills mm -hmm. their ability to understand how God is operating. And yeah. you met, mentioned your series on Ecclesiastes. What makes that such a hard book is that you're dealing with the mysteries of how God interacts with this world. And, yep. um, and you find yourself scratching your head a lot. At least the wisest man in the world, Solomon. Yes. Yeah. Well, was. he says he's put eternity on man's heart. And then it says, but he's done it in such a way so that it makes them long for that, which is eternal, which is God himself, but but in a way that they can't actually know him. Yeah. So he's yeah. purposely, purposely created this conundrum for us, which is why I think there's a lot of angst. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you have the rise of postmodernism today. Um, and in that is, again, the, the belief system that there is no objective reality and you can't know anything. And so... My knowledge versus your knowledge, I can't tell you you're wrong. Um, and and we really cannot search out things to a s sense of certainty. But in Galatians 4, he actually, uh, Paul says that we did not know God prior to faith, but now we both know him and are known by him. And so in the mind of the apostle, in fact, we can know him um, and more importantly, be known by him. And, and that's in a very salvific, personal, intimate sense. So... So what should be our motives when we're contemplating or considering God? Yeah, well, the, well, the Westminster Catechism sums it up quite well. He said, uh, it, they essentially, it says that the primary purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Um, that's her first motive, to um, glorify him and then at the same time enjoy him. Um, or as Piper would put his little twist on it, glorify him by enjoying him. Which one do you like better? I don't know. Me I haven't either. thought about it. I used to like Pipers more. I'm more. I think about. It, I think they're one and the same. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. But but that's to be our goal. That that's the yeah. that's the end for which man was created, um, and that that's our motive. So we don't need more knowledge just for knowledge's sake. Um, Paul himself will say that knowledge, in and of itself, does nothing but puff people up. Um, you know, we become arrogant and irritating to people. Um, and we become good for nothing yeah. in that sense. Um, and so we have to go beyond just mere theology of God and actually contemplate the person of God himself. Which can be scary, though. Yeah. Um, most of us can comfortably study the person of our president or the queen of England or a prime minister or something like that. Uh, and during that study, we could enjoy it. Um, we could feel we're quite wise and understand the person. We can even look down on the person and find things to criticize. Certainly we can with the current president. Everyone seems to do it all the time. But if we were given an opportunity to meet with them face-to-face, -face, I would suspect yeah. that we'd have a whole different attitude. All of a sudden you're being brought into the queen's audience or the president. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, your brother, when he was 
doing security for President Trump, mm-hmm. you know, but I think the thing you told me he said was just the sheer power. He had no idea, you know, that presence of the power with all of the security and everything yeah. else, you know, it, it's awe-inspiring. And, and so it's easy for us to talk about it in a abstract way, but it's a whole nother thing when we're actually coming into the very presence mm-hmm. of, of that person. So how much more is it going to be if we're going to consider the person of God beyond just theology? Yeah. So so as, as we look at his attributes, the things that, that make him God, we, you know, we have the choice of then either holding him back at a comfortable distance and therefore just making him nothing more than just this figure or, or ghost of a God, or we can embrace him and honor him and pray to him and obey him and proclaim him as he truly is to those around us. Um, what we don't have, though, is that freedom to just discard the attributes we don't like. Right. Um, and that's what we see, again, happening all the time is, we, you know, the wrath of God or or the sovereignty of God or something like that. It, it's just people don't like it, so... Yeah, I'll pick and choose and then make make God as I image him in my own yeah. mind. Yeah. And, and you see that when you when you look at david as he wrote the psalms i think that's a great place for anybody who wants to contemplate more than just the theology of god to see how that interacts with a person in his real life david is so brutally honest yeah. um, with himself and also with his struggles and and yet always in the psalms he always turns it back around to a settled trust in in god even in the midst of some very very Difficult things. There's there's an aroma. There's a flavor that you give uh, get you 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 don't see the flippancy of yeah. today, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's yeah. just wonderful. Um, and that's why I found when I'm going to a person who's grieving or on their deathbed, yeah. the Psalms are always the things that I can open and read, and it's really fun to yeah. watch. Um, even when they're agitated, how often they become settled again as a reminder yep. that David too was struggling David too was wondering what is going on but yeah. but his trust is in his God and and that person's trust also is in God so yeah you know, and, go ahead oh, well, I was just no. going to say but the thing that makes his psalm so rich and, and robust is that um, they're completely controlled by such a high view of the person of God himself and so he's always invoking God's attributes and his character and his person and you know, our songs today are utterly void of the person of God. Yeah. You know, it, it's, I mean, we've talked about this so much in past, but it's the I, me, and what God can do for me versus a, a, a solemn meditation in invoking the attributes of God as a means then of praise. Yeah. How many sermons do you hear today that is literally doing nothing but speaking of God rather than, quote unquote, the relevant sermon to motivate you? to be a better husband, better wife, give more, whatever it might be, rather than here's God, let's consider him, let's worship him, let's let's just pause for a moment in on all the things we're doing in our life and just consider our God. And then in light of what we've considered, what what needs to be changed? What 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 mindset or action? Yeah. Because uh, right. that's all Paul is doing in his letters. Here's right. here's our theology. Here's who God is. Here's what he's done in, as a triune God. And in light of that, do this. So anyhow, uh, Psalm 9 is a good example. He says in verses 1 and 2, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart, and I will tell of all his wonders. 
I will be glad and exult in him. I will sing praise to his name, O Most High. Mm -hmm. So to him, the great glory would be to just simply speak of the wonders of God. Yeah. Um, he, he also gives words to his son Solomon in First Chronicles 28, starting in verse 9. He says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. So, so know the God of right, your father. Right. Mm -hmm. And serve him with a whole heart. Well, that's going to be based off the knowing and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. And so again, he's just invoking this language of knowing and understanding and all of those great things. And it's kind of cool, the parallelism. He will let you find him. Yeah. But if you forsake him, he will reject you. That the finding is also embracing you and accept you and and not finding him is is a state of rejection mm -hmm. but the highest good that Solomon could have is to know God God himself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um it, what about Psalm 66 where David says come in here all who fear God and I will tell you of what he has done for my soul when was the last time you know maybe a person has ever heard some other man or woman just say, say come here and let me just talk to you. But what I'm going to talk to you about is not just some counsel or wisdom. I'm just going to talk to you about what my Lord has done for me. Mm -hmm. um, I've actually had that privilege a few times, and they were they were just precious, and they still are precious to me about how this person's settled trust and and love for their their God is seen because it's beyond just theology. They've walked and lived in his presence and they've seen it. And so they're able to say, I have tasted yeah. and found that he was good. And let me tell you about it. So yeah. Um, Psalm 108 uh, verses one through five, he writes, my heart is steadfast. Oh God, I will sing. I will sing praises even with my soul. Awake harp and lyre. I will awake in the dawn. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, among the peoples. And I will sing praises to thee among the nations. Why? For thy loving kindness is great above the heavens, and thy truth reaches to skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and thy glory above all the earth. And so he, he gives the reason then for all that, and it's he's essentially invoking the loving kindness of God as it's translated. And, and that word there for loving kindness is a very full word, a very rich word. Um, it's a covenantal word. It's the Hebrew word hesed. Um, and, and, and <laughs> yeah, get the gutter, got to get the gutter in there. Yeah. Um, but, but part of that word is keeping covenant. Um, and, and it's not just love. It's not just an emotive thing that God has for us. It's, it's something bound up with his own faithfulness and his own words. Well, yeah. And that's why the love comes in is that when God sets his love upon a person, he makes covenant with them. Yes, and, absolutely. And mm -hmm. when he makes covenant, his faithfulness kicks in and, and therefore, he will not break that covenant. Mm -hmm. And so that when Paul or David is saying, you know, your loving kindness is better in life, what he's saying is, there's nothing better than having you set your love upon me, which brings me into a covenant relationship because it can't be broken. I'm safe there. Yep. And um, bound up with covenant are promises. Yeah. And so he, David, when he's saying that, he's bringing to his mind, though he doesn't explicitly say, state them, but by the nature of what Hesed is, He's got promises he's hanging on to. Yeah. And in the New Testament, it's grace. It, yeah. it, that's how they would translate it. And so we don't think about that oftentimes. But 
for by grace you have been saved. And in that, we now are partakers of that new covenant. And that new covenant carries with the promises, again, just the same way. So it's very, very rich. Yeah. Um, you want to do Psalm 106? Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or can show forth all his praise? How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation, that I might see the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I might rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I might glory in your inheritance. Now, again, he's he's referencing the loving kindness again, but there's other qualities of God that he's bringing into that whole psalm of praise. His mm-hmm. loving kindness, that God is eternal, that his, he is good, he is powerful, he's savior, he's a sovereign, uh, and he's the giver of all good things. I mean, all of those you could say in a very cold way, but but when you're David, you you bring into him a flavor of relationship and love and adoration, um, and it's just a beautiful thing. Uh, we can also see it in uh, Psalm 102. Now, this is long. We're going to read verses 1 through 17, but uh, as as it's read, just listen and try to draw out the the qualities of God that's being revealed. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me in the day when I call, answer me quickly, for my days have been consumed in smoke and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican of the wilderness, and I have become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. They who deride me have used my name as a curse. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a lengthened shadow, and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, do abide forever, in your name to all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth thy glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. So that's a hard psalm. He, he's being brutally honest. He's, he's in a difficult uh, situation. This is a man who's not just having a bad day. Um, he's in great, great distress. Um, and yet built, built into that, then he begins to turn the corner and his plea... His, his yearning, his requests are all built upon then the person of God himself. So he, he talks about God's wrath in verse 10, and he talks about God's eternity, uh, being an eternal God in verse 12. He's, he's a God who's compassionate. Uh, in verse 17, he's both gracious and the protector. Uh, all of this is the knowledge of who God is that causes David then to be able to respond in a very specific manner. And you're going to find this consistent all the way through the Bible, right? That mm-hmm. the ones who know God, it it then changes how they're going to approach a life and and interpret their life situation. 
hundred percent. Yeah. And the goal always being the glory of God. Right. That's the point. Right. Um, and so that would be the first, uh, we would say the first motivation for right. the study of God, the contemplation of God. It's, it's ultimately the glory of God. Uh, the second one we would say um, that it, it truly is the duty of every believer to seek and to know their their God, and it's therefore a very much worthwhile task. But a second um, motivation then in light of that is is obedience, the idea of obedience. Um, in Jeremiah 9.23, it says this, it says, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty men boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boasts of the, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. Why? For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So, so he's delighting in something here, loving kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth. In other words, obedience. Well, and the command in there is to know God. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you have a person, I'm, I'm not trying to be harsh here, but when you have a person who wants to talk as a Christian, but they're not able to talk rightly about God, they have not yet been obedient to the expectation that God has. And that is our highest job task as a human being is not to be a good husband or whatever. It's, it's to know God, and that's what he wants. And, it, and because of that, the better that you know him, um, then you can understand what he delights in, and then you can arrange your life, right? Yeah. Um, Hosea 6.6 6 says, "For I so this is God speaking, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now there's a wonderful parallel going on here. Yeah. Um, and it, it's kind of a backwards one. So the first part of it is the, the, the product, um, if you will. So, so loyalty um, parallels with knowledge and then sacrifice parallels with burnt offerings. So the burnt offerings turn into a sacrifice and in the same way, knowledge of God turns into a kind of loyalty. Which is so cool if you just let that sink in. Yeah. Um, And again, how many people are so busy trying to serve God or do things for God or see great things happen for the sake of God, but they've never contemplated God. And therefore, in fact, they're, they're so busy offering up the sacrifice, but they don't even know why. And they, and not necessarily are the sacrifices that they're offering of their life consistent with what God would have. Um, and he says, this is what I delight. This is, this is what I desire. And yeah. then there's a third motive. What is that? Um, true knowledge of God gives eternal life. Um, in John 17, 3, it says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Um, and so this, this this knowledge here is far more than than merely an intellectual knowledge. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. Um, by this, we're saying that it's not merely speaking of of if we're, we're going to reference an earlier podcast, noticia, just facts. Yeah. Um, basic understanding, and it's not even that second category, a census, where you agree that those facts are true, but rather a fiducia. Um, th- that that where you now take in light of that knowledge. And assenting to that being true, you turn that corner and now there's a love and a hope and a delight in that stuff. Yeah, another way you could say it would be just a full assurance. Mm-hmm. You're you're resting there. Um, and and we just saw that with David. I mean, he's talking about his horrible life situation and then he turns that corner and you see that 
that resting yeah. and the assurance of, I know my God. Yeah. And as, because I know him, I can call upon his wrath. You know, <laughs> sure. I can call upon his judgment. I can call upon the fact that he is not slumbering or anything else. Um, and so it's so important that we understand that the better that we understand God, it brings us then into this state of eternal life. I mean, when we know God beyond just simply contemplating him for facts, but that we now come into a relationship through faith um, in that is life itself. So what were the three things? The first one is just to bring glory to God. Second was what? Obedience. Yeah, obedience. I mean, God commands us to know him. And yeah. third is this is the means by which we have eternal life. So you're not going to find eternal life in a God who isn't. Right. I mean, yeah. that sounds kind of obvious, but how many people do we talk to who don't even know who God is, but somehow they're figuring they're, they're entering into eternity safe. And it's like, you don't know God yet. Um, so as we prepare in our next podcast, we're going to deal with the, the mystery of God's triune being. Um, we, un, we want to understand that we're, we're trying to walk a narrow path because we don't want to give you just facts, though we have to give you facts. Um, but we want you to begin to understand the mystery and the glory of who that God is and how he has revealed himself in the words. Mm-hmm.